0: Cast of sermons by Pastor Charles St. Ange, LCMS missionary in Montreal, Quebec, and the Caribbean. This week's text is Romans 13, chapter 1 through 7, and our theme is State and the Gospel. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus, the Christ. Amen. We spent two weeks in Romans chapter 12 where Paul describes for us in beautiful detail what the Christian life looks like. People who have been redeemed from sin by grace through Christ's work on the cross and have received that gift in baptism, how do they then go out and live their lives outside of the church walls? The trick in Romans 13 that Paul has to address is, how does one do that in a non-Jewish context, where the government isn't particularly interested in promoting the good of the church. And so Romans 13 is Paul's very short attempt to create a way of being the church, the body of Christ, in a non-Jewish, non-Christian world. Rome, after all, is the seat of imperial government, and so this isn't a letter that's being written to you know, Brandon, Manitoba. This is a letter for the Christians who are in Ottawa, in Washington, D.C., in Beijing, in the capitals of their respective places. So, what should be Christians' and the Christian church's attitude toward governmental power? Well, there are two major approaches to understanding humanity, and both of them are going to impact how we live our lives as human beings, Christian or non-Christian, in the world. The first is what I might call the Pollyanna approach. Humans are basically good. We all want to be good people and do good things and say good words. Bad behavior, if any humans do display it, is an artifact of upbringing or a lack of basic needs or class structure or something that we could dismantle and therefore free humans to be the good, decent people that at root, they all wanna be. Um, Some forms of Marxism are based on this concept that really, if any human being does something bad, it's because there is a structure that is prohibiting them from doing good. Over on the other side of the Pollyanna approach is what I call the Dr. House approach. Some of you might remember house md that doctors show from back a number of years ago i think it ran for several seasons with hugh laurie playing the titular role of this rather gruff doctor who would do differential diagnosis on different patients i call this the doctor house approach because it implies that human beings are basically selfish we're not very nice we tend to do things that are not good or not appropriate and so we do what is best for us unless something can come and influence us from the outside, forcing us, in a sense, to do good. Remember Romans 3. If you do, you will understand where Paul comes down on the Pollyanna humanity versus Dr. House humanity question. None is righteous. No. No not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curse and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Since Paul, building actually on Jesus, who looking at his beloved disciples, whom he himself had called and says, if you though then who are evil, know how to do the right thing for your children. If Paul suggests that we are as a human race in the Dr. House camp and not in the Pollyanna camp, then what is going to keep us on the right track? Thus, there is government. Thus, God has chosen to restrain the incredible evil that would naturally just sort of bubble up from the human race if there wasn't some exterior constraint, to work through governments to keep all of the human race from not flying off the handle, as happened, prior to the flood. Those of you who are in Wednesday's Bible study, we know that that was the reason why God sent that destructive force on earth when he looked at humanity and said that every thought of their hearts and minds was only evil all the time. Now, Luther, when he was asked to give his great confession of his personal faith, when he thought he might actually die, and the people around him did too, said, you need to put down in words what you think the Christian faith is all about, talks this way about the law and the government. He says, here we maintain that the law is given by God in the first place to curb sin by means of the threat and terror of punishment. That's what government does. However, all of this failed, Luther wrote, because of the evil that sin worked in humankind. Some who are enemies of the law because it prohibits what they want to do and commands what they do not want to do become worse because of the law. Others become blind and presumptuous, imagining that they can and do keep the law by their own powers, as has just been said above about the scholastic theologians. But that attitude produces hypocrites and false saints. Thus says Luther about the incredible importance of the law in the hands of someone who can enact it within human race. Government, we sometimes say as theologians, is the alien or foreign or not normal work of God in Christ. Because what government has to do is not deliver the good news, not deliver the freedom that we have in Christ, but instead point out sin. Or bad behavior, if you're outside the church and don't like that three-letter S word. And the government then needs to find a way to restrain it. Christians have the advantage of people outside of the church, those who do not know the scriptures, that we know what's happening with government from a very high level, how God is working through government in this foreign way, in this imperfect through imperfect servants to accomplish his will. We know, if you will, how the sausage is made, but we still need sausage, and so we still have to live in this world. And so Luther, again, in attempting to explain how Christians both know how the sausage is made and yet still have to live in a world where it's happening all the time, wrote his famous piece 500 years ago called The Freedom of the Christian. And he described how Christians approach their life towards the government and towards the gospel this way. A Christian is an utterly free person. Lord of all, subject to none. We've been set free by Christ in our baptisms and been given a name like Jesus's that is above every name. But Luther then said, a Christian is also an utterly dutiful person, servant of all and subject to all. And it's precisely in that light that Paul speaks of submission to the governing authorities because we know that without God's gift of conscience, how bad things could possibly get. Now being subject to the governing authorities, Christian and non-Christian does not always mean we agree with them. It doesn't mean that we endorse everything the government does and say, this is good, right, and salutary. After all, one does need to reconcile Romans 13, which we've just read this morning, with what we read in Acts chapter 5. Now, if you don't remember what happens in Acts chapter 5, we have the disciples, chief amongst whom is Peter, now an apostle amongst apostles to the people of God, who is running into opposition from the Jewish authorities to the proclamation of deliverance from sin and the gift of eternal life in Jesus. So one time they're out there in the temple and they're preaching, they get caught and they get brought before the council. And as Luke records in Acts 5, verse 27 and following, the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood down on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, This would seem to be kind of in contradiction to what Paul is trying to teach the Romans in the 13th chapter of his letter. Well, to try and unpack this a little bit, I'm gonna share uh, a story that I read years and years and years ago. In fact, I think I might've been uh, my first year of university from a book by Tony Campolo called A Reasonable Faith. He writes this story from personal experience based in the early 1960s, which was the time of the civil rights movement in the United States and the war in Vietnam. And both of those were headline news. Civil disobedience was being practiced by students on campuses of universities and colleges all across the United States. So it was no surprise, Tony writes, that when I spoke for a lecture series at a Midwestern university, a student would rise and ask, Professor, can Christians practice civil disobedience? To which, of course, Tony Campolo quoted from Romans 13, which is our text for this morning, and said, doesn't that answer your question? But the student pointed out that despite what Paul wrote, he still ended up in prison in Rome, of all places. How did that come to pass? Well, that's a long story, Campolo answered, and I'd rather not go into it but the student did want to get into it. And so he started to answer the professor. It's really not too complicated. You see, there was trouble in the early church back then. The Jews and Gentiles didn't want to worship together. So the apostles got together in what was called the Council of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, in order to solve this problem of how people from these two different racial groups should relate to each other. Now, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. But he decided he'd make a point by making the trip with a traveling companion who was a Gentile. Now, in those days, Professor, Jews and Gentiles didn't travel together. So when the two of them got on the boat together and bunked out in the same cabin, they were kind of breaking the rules. I don't know what you'd call that, but it sounds like the first freedom ride to me. Then when they got to Jerusalem, Paul and his friend from that other race decided to eat together in public which upset a lot of people because Jews and Gentiles weren't supposed to eat together back then. I don't know what you'd call that, Professor, but it sounds like the first sit-in to me. And after they finished eating, these two breakers of the Jewish laws and regulations headed down Main Street to the temple. Now, Professor, it's one thing to have a freedom ride and another thing to have a sit-in. These two troublemakers were going to stage a pray-in, and everybody knew it. So when the crowd realized what was happening, they rioted. And when the Roman soldiers stepped in and took those two troublemakers and arrested them, they put them into protective custody. Well, while they're in jail waiting for their court hearing, Paul and his were beaten up by those Roman soldiers. Now, I don't know what you'd call that, but it does sound like a good example of police brutality. So when Paul finally gets his case heard before the magistrates of the town, he announces that they can't just push him around like they did and get away with it because he's a Roman citizen. So Paul says he wants to appeal his case to the Supreme Court, which, of course, was the emperor in Rome. Now Here's the point the student was trying to make. After writing so eloquently about being subject to the governing authorities, and Romans is written before all of these events that I just described in Acts, Paul went and bent the law in front of both the Roman and Jewish authorities. So my question to all of you this morning is, did Paul break his own rule? And I would answer, no. Because by being subject to the governing authorities, he does not mean approving of everything they do. Paul submitted to arrest. He submitted to the beatings, even afterwards appealing them. And he used the system of laws that were in place to further the gospel. He was, in fact, subverting things while at the same time being subjected to them. Now, all of you, I hope because you're Lutherans, and we have talked about this before, believe that pastors are called by the church and God to be ministers of God's grace in your presence. You give us the keys of the kingdom that we might use those keys to set you free from your sins in Christ's name and all of those who come looking for freedom from slavery to sin, death, and the devil just as the government, Paul writes, is a minister of the sword and of justice. The pastors are not infallible. We make mistakes. You can hold us to account through your own reading of scripture and the confessions. You hold pastors accountable to the promises that we have made to act only in the stead and by the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, the government is never infallible. The government is never perfect. Pastors are judged against scripture. Governments are judged against natural law and your conscience. Paul, in his actions throughout the last chapters of the book of Acts, was following Jesus's own footsteps. Jesus, too, obeyed his father, while at the same time being subject to whatever the government had in place, even if that meant crucifixion. Now, one last word about Romans 13, and it's verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. You might see a bit of the flaw in Paul's argument here. What if the government says it's illegal to worship? What if the government says it's illegal to confess Christ as Lord? What if the government catches you worshiping and they throw you in prison? Wouldn't that make the government a terror to good conduct? Well, the answer relies on us being Lutheran again for a moment, because the last thing we want to do is throw worship and confession of our faith into the category of conduct. We are, after all, saved by grace, by God's undeserved kindness, through our trust, our faith in Christ alone, not by works or conduct. You'd all agree with that, right? If I was standing at Ascension, I'd be looking for heads nodding. Unfortunately, I've only got like two screens and my wife, who is nodding vigorously, over here beside me, which is good. So what Paul's talking about here in Romans 13, 3 is about terror brought on by bad works. Not by faith expressing itself in worship, even though worship looks like a conduct, the word actually for conduct in Greek here is ergon, from which we get the word ergonomics, which is right making things so that work can be pleasant. So you have an ergonomic chair, you have an ergonomic mouse pad. So we don't want to confuse worship and confession with conduct. What Paul is talking about here is if you go out and you break the commandments, you badmouth people, and you murder them by being angry with them in your heart, you do any of the things that Jesus talks about not doing in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be surprised if the government comes after you. But our worship and our faith are not about conduct. They are about the work of the Spirit within us. And therefore, in those things, while we submit to the government's authority to arrest us if they feel that's what they need to do, at the same time, we must obey God rather than men in these things, for the good of our neighbors. For where there is no good news, there is only a minister of the sword and never ministry of grace. Now, how does all this work? This is one of those times where you could say, well, that's all great in theory, but does it work in practice? Well, if we had more time, which we do not, I would have you spend a couple of hours with me to watch one of my personal favorite movies and one that really influenced me when I was a teenager, the movie Romero about the life and ministry of the Archbishop of El Salvador, who was in the end assassinated um, precisely for proclaiming freedom in Christ. There's a point near the end of the movie where the Archbishop is struggling with two possibilities. One is to simply go along with everything that the government is doing, even though he knows it's wrong. Or the other is succumbing to liberation theology with his fellow priests who are literally taking up arms to fight the government. And as he wanders through the countryside, praying to God, saying, what would you have me do? He finds himself walking into a village, which has been occupied by the military police. Now, at this point, in the period of El Salvadoran history, the priests are generally assumed to be the bad guys. So seeing, not knowing he's the archbishop, but simply a priest in his priestly garb coming, this encounter happens. Look, the police say a priest. Bring him over here, search him. Second officer says nothing there. First one says, maybe he's got something underneath. Take his clothes off. I have nothing, the priest says. Strip him, the police insist, and they take his shirt off at that moment the people of the town surround him looking to him for something for some sign for a word and all he says is, it's all right it's all right but you are our voice they say to him you speak for us and in that moment Romero gets the answer he has been searching for so fervently in his walk through the devastated countryside A smile comes on his face, and he looks at the people, stripped of his shirt, and says, let's begin the celebration of the Mass. Right now, and in the midst of these police who are holding him and the people that are around him, he says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Christ, he prays, you have made us to live in dignity. Christ, have mercy, the people respond. Lord, you created us for freedom. Lord, have mercy, the people respond. And as they continue the Kyrie prayer, the police simply fade away. And the good news is proclaimed to both them if they wanted to stay and hear it, and to the people who needed a word. You speak for us, they said to this pastor in the midst of struggling to understand, submitting to these government authorities and understanding what kind of brutal oppression that is going to mean. And in that moment, the answer came from Acts 5. We must obey God rather than men. And what does God ask from us but to proclaim the one who has liberated us from from slavery? For the government is a minister of the sword. But greater still is the church, the minister of the good news, of salvation, peace, forgiveness, and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like to learn more, visit intheway.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless your week.